Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, producer May here. Today we're bringing you a special episode of the New Statesman podcast, recorded live at our Politics Live conference. Keir Starmer is interviewed by Rachel Wearmouth, who is currently senior political correspondent at The Mirror and soon to join the New Statesman as deputy political editor. Good morning and welcome to the New Statesman's first ever Politics Live conference. British politics has never been more dramatic or volatile and this conference is your chance to hear from the biggest names in British politics and to put your questions to them. And we'll begin with the man who hopes to be our next Prime Minister. Sir Keir Starmer has had a successful career as a human rights lawyer, co-founding Doughty Chambers and conducting cases in the the international courts before going on to become the Director of Public Prosecutions and Head of the Crown Prosecution Service for England and Wales. He became an MP in 2015 and Shadow Brexit Secretary in 2016 and four years later he became Labour leader following a drubbing for the party at the 2019 general election. Since then the polls have turned in Labour's favour and speculation about the next election is rife. Could Keir become the 56th Prime Minister of our country and what will it take to get him there? Please welcome Sir Keir Starmer. Morning. Morning. How is, how are you? Very good. Very good. Right, so I'd like to, to start by asking you about um, the, the story that is, has emerged overnight, that apparently there are, there are Labour, um, some rather Conservative MPs who are in talks to join the Labour Party. What can you tell us? Oh, well, <laughs> if we all spent all our time chasing every story that's circulating in Westminster, uh, we'd spend a lot of time. But what I can say is... After the result in Wakefield last week, um, if I was a Tory MP, I'd be pretty worried um, about the next general election because that was a fantastic result for us. Um, And the Labour Party is in good spirits, um, in high hopes, and we've got a real belief um, about what we're doing. Obviously, the local election results earlier in the year were very good for us. Um, But Wakefield showed that, um, you know, at a general election, there may now well be a Labour government. And when I think of where we were two years ago, when I took over as Labour leader, just over two years ago, we'd just come off the back of the worst general election results since 1935. And as I took over as leader of the Labour Party, most people said to my face, good luck. Um, (laughs) And behind my back, they said, in good spirits, but you'll never do it in one term. (laughs) Um, And what we've shown is that we're on track um, to form the next government. That is, 
I think, vindication of everything we've done in the last two years. I'm under no illusion. I mean, we've got as much hard work to do in the next two years as we've done in the last two years, but I knew my first job was to change the Labour Party, absolutely do what I said in the very first words I said as Labour leader, which is rip out anti-Semitism by its roots from our party, make it clear that we are unshakably in support of NATO, be very clear about our pro-business approach, the relationship with business, and to carry out such rule changes were necessary to make sure the Labour Party faced outwards, not inwards. Now, we've done all that. I think Wakefield and those local elections are the result of that hard work. But if anybody thinks in the Labour Party there may be members in this audience that the hard work is over, it's not. The next two years is even harder than the two years we've just had. But we are full of hope, we're full of belief, um, and I would be, if I was a Tory MP, looking across the electoral map after Wakefield, I would be twitching a bit as to uh, whether I'd be holding my seat in the next general election. And so we're in good spirit. I think everyone will notice that's, that's not a denial of the fear of the night story. <laughs> well, <laughs> these things swirl around the whole time. OK. Um, you, you mentioned Wakefield there, which the, the Labour Party won on a 12% swing. Yeah. Um, but if you look at some of the, the by-elections held in the run-up to the 1997 election, we're looking at much bigger swings, you know, 17%, 22%, 29%. You said you're on the path to power, but, you know, you're going to need some bigger swings. Well, yes, of course, and there's much more work to do. But, um, look, feet on the ground. I took over on the back of the worst election results since 1935. Uh, we weren't in that position as we are running into 1997. Um, the change we've done in the Labour Party, we've done in two years. It took much longer than that in the run-up to 1997. Most people, I think, would not have believed that we could have got as far as we have got in two years. Um, now, have we got more to do? Of course we have. Um, much, much more hard work um, to do. But I knew my job was three major tasks in the period between 2019 and the next general election, whenever that may be, change the Labour Party, um, and we've been hard at work at that. Nobody would now say... Uh, the Labour Party has changed, that we've not uh, made real progress on anti-Semitism. Look at that result in Barnet um, in the local elections. Because I said, when I said I would root out anti-Semitism, that I wouldn't be the judge of whether we're making progress. I said I would leave that to those that felt they couldn't vote for us. In Barnet, they came back. Uh, we've dealt with the um, other issues. First job was change the Labour Party. Next bit was to expose the government as not fit uh, to govern, and we're doing that, ably assisted by the government itself and Boris Johnson in particular. And obviously the next stage is then, if not them, then why us? And setting out absolutely in clear terms our mission for government, what it is we want to achieve in the next Labour government, which we intend uh, to bring about the next general election. So they've been my three tasks. I've had that plan. I've been operating to it. We're on schedule, um, and that's why we're full of belief at the moment. Uh Wes Streetin has said that Labour does not want to be a flash in the pan for four or five years and that, in fact, you're, you're planning for two terms in government. Was your Shadow Health Secretary freelancing there or is it the case that you're planning for two terms? Uh, no, we want a two-term, at least a two-term Labour government. Are you government. planning for one? Yes, because if you look at the change that we need to bring about in this country, um, it's profound. We're, the country is crying out for change. Um, we've got, you know, a stagnant stuck country. We've got an economy that hasn't grown for 12 years. This is the single most important issue that's been unaddressed. And our mission is to turn that around, which is to have a confident, you know, 
forward-looking united kingdom that actually, um, you know, captures, if you like, the spirit of the pandemic when we all came together, um, absolutely tackles the outstanding issues and grasps the opportunities for tomorrow. And that's our ambition. That's the change we want to bring about for this country. Um, and yes, we want more than one term uh, to achieve that. Of course we do. My utter focus is on the next two years, if it is two years, until that general election, because um, in a sense, the biggest danger for our party now is to say, well, we've done better than we thought we would in the first two years of this leadership. Therefore, we could take our foot off the pedal wrong. Uh, we've got to put the foot even harder down um, on the pedal. The next two years for the Labour Party will be even tougher, even harder work. But the prize is absolutely huge, which is the next Labour government that can actually um, address all the issues that desperately need to be addressed in this country, starting with the economy. Uh, you've, you've said repeatedly that there's no pact with any other party, nope. no pact with the Lib Dems, nope. no pact with the SNP. So I won't ask you that question again. But I, I would uh, like you to. Can it's still no? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to ask you about, you know, what's your working relationship with uh, Ed Davey like? Do you, do you go for a pint together? Um, how we do you haven't go? been for a pint together. Never. Um, but you know, we're in the lobbies together the whole time. I've got a pretty good working relationship with most people. Um, in Parliament across all the political parties, including quite a number of Tories as well. Um, I'm not, I think this is probably a product of coming into politics later in life. If you've done other things in life, then you're more used to building bridges, building alliances, getting problems fixed. Um, and that's the approach I bring into politics, whether that's with uh, Ed Davey or anybody else. So, so you would be content for, for Keir Starmer's Labour Party to be scribe, described as, say, less tribal than New Labour? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think if you've spent most of your working life doing other things before you come into politics, then your mindset is different because you've not spent every day in the fights within Parliament um, and the ups and downs of political parties. You know, in most businesses, in most organisations, and I'm sure everyone in the audience reflects this, there are always challenges wherever you work. Um, most of the time, what we have to do is be honest about all the challenges um, bring people together, address it and fix it. And that's been mine. I mean, this is... When I was working at the Northern Ireland Policing Board, um, the problem, amongst others, that we were trying to fix was that um, there were almost no Catholics in the police service. And this was part of the Good Friday um, agreement that that had to change. That was the problem we were addressing. And I was part of the response. How do we fix that? How do we give confidence to both communities? Um, to have faith in the police service in Northern Ireland, making great, great strides um, then. So that's, a, that's the mindset I bring. When I was Director of Public Prosecutions, it became obvious to me that we had a problem with the way we were prosecuting sexual offences. Um, and we had to fix it and change it. And that's what I did. And then um, when I took over as leader of the Labour Party, same mindset, which is um, if you lose an election as badly as we did in 2019, you don't point to the electorate and say, what were you doing? Uh, you look in the mirror and say, we as a party need to change. And that's why I've been so determined in the change I brought about. So I'm, I, I, I think what I bring is um, the ability to identify a problem properly, work out how we fix it, and then get on with fixing it. And I'm going to carry on in that vein. Because the problem we've got at the moment is a, is a country which is stuck. The economy is totally stagnant. It hasn't grown for 12 years. The reason we're having all these discussions about pay rises and pay claims, etc., is because we've got high tax 
and low growth. That is the legacy of this government. It's a toxic legacy. We need to turn that around um, so that our country can actually realise its potential and go forward in that self-assured, self-confident way that I want, as a united kingdom, not a divided kingdom. Can I move on to policy? Is your policy yeah. offer election ready? How much of the manifesto do you feel is written? Oh, we've got... I mean, in terms of have we identified the single most important issue, which is growing the economy? Yes. Have we already said um, what we need to do about it? In broad terms, yes. Um, we need a new working relationship with business. I've been talking to businesses all across the country about this. What they want and what a Labour government will provide is a government with a clear mission that we can then work with business to deliver. We've said we need a huge investment in the next generation of jobs, the jobs that are going to be created. If we seize the opportunity on climate change, on climate change, let's stop seeing it as an obligation, let's see it as an opportunity. Somebody's got to lead the world in the next generation of buses and trains and cars. Somebody's got to lead the world on renewables. Somebody's got to lead the world on the next generation of wind turbines deep in the sea. We can win that race. So we've said that already. I'm clear we need a new skills agenda. I've no end of people who said we haven't got the right skills in people in the jobs that they're actually going into. So we've got a big commission on that that David Blunkett is heading up for me. And then the other bit is that not only is our economy stagnant, it's also an economy which is sort of overheating in London and the southeast, but not allowing other parts of the country to contribute to it. And we've got to turn that around. So in the big ticket items, yes. Um, if there's an election any time soon, we will be ready. But of course there's more policy that we need to put on the table. So and we'll be doing ready. that into conference and beyond conference. OK, so I'd like to ask you about some of the, the pledges your party had previously, and yeah. uh, specifically tuition fees, um, which was a, a policy under Jeremy Corbyn. It was something that you backed during your, your leadership campaign. What's your current thinking on it? Particularly? My current thinking on it at the moment is I don't think the arrangements we've got in place at the moment work very well. Um, but would you, would you back really, free tuition going into the next session? They don't really work for um, uh, students. They don't really work for the universities. So, of course, we're going to have to look at that. Well, we, what we do have to recognise, I think, is that having come through the pandemic, we need to look at everything in the round and, you know, make choices about where we want to put our money. But all of that is being worked through. All of that will be set out in our plans clearly before the, uh, the country. And everything we do will be costed so that everybody can see what, what we're prioritising, how we're prioritising it um, and how we're costing it. But I can tell you now... Um, the next election is going to be fought on the economy. The cost of living crisis is... is so do you think the country can afford to offer free tuition? Well, I think the cost of living crisis is causing such um, hardship for so many people. We have to get the economy growing. And all these questions... I mean, people quite rightly tackle me on, you know, what are you going to spend on, how are you going to tax? All those are secondary questions to the question, how are you going to grow the economy? And we do plan to grow the economy. And I utterly focused on that. And similarly, Labour's last manifesto pledged to put up income tax on the top 5% of earners. Are you still attracted to that policy? The, 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 what we've done with the last manifesto is put it to one side. Um, we're starting from scratch. Um, the slate is wiped clean. We've got a policy review going on at the moment. Annalisa Dodds is, is leading that for us in consultation with our members and with our trade unions. Um, but I think nobody can pretend that... Um, the world hasn't changed since 2019. We've been through a pandemic and out the other side of it. Our, um, you know, public services are on their knees. We've got 
Um, an awful conflict in Ukraine, which I don't think is going to be resolved anytime soon, which means that um, economic sanctions are likely to be in place for some time. You know, a responsible Labour Party facing the electorate in a year or two's time, whenever it may be, has to take the world as it is um, and present our programme against that, and that's what we will do. OK, I want to ask about um, proportional representation. Yeah. Um, uh, an, an electoral reform. Unite and Unison, the two biggest trade unions, um, they've both backed the idea. How do you, how do you feel about it? What's your thinking on, on electoral reform and PR? Quite a lot of people in the Labour Party um, feel very strongly about PR. I completely how do you feel understand about uh, that. Well, I have to say, having grown up in East... Uh, I, I, I joined the Labour Party in East Surrey, which is where I was brought up, but in East Surrey, um, every time you vote Labour, the vote, the vote doesn't really count for anything because you're never going to get anywhere. Um, but, you know, we have to face the fact that, one, the electoral system we've got is the system we're going to have going into the next election. Um, and therefore, we need to work out what we need to focus on. And my focus is on other things, but particularly on growing the economy, restoring our public services. And, and allowing our country to take the challenges of the future. So I understand the strength of feeling. I also would add this. Having been an MP now for seven years, um, the link to the constituency is really important. And when I've, I've talked to people about other systems, because there are other systems in play in, in Wales, obviously, in Scotland, um, if you lose the link to the constituency, I think you lose something very special. It's, you know, along with being leader of the Labour Party... It's my job to take on the issues that my constituents rep bring to me, and they bring very many to me. Um, and if you break that link, I think you lose something. So, but I mean, the main argument is I've got other things to focus on at the moment, and we're not going to be... You know, we're, we're running this election on the system we've got. We've got to face up to that. And speaking of trade unions, why did you feel it was necessary to, to ban your front, pen front benches from going on the picket lines during the rail strikes? Well, the approach I've taken through this is... Um, it's perfectly normal to have pay rounds and have negotiations going on. That happens every year. Um, it's more acute this year because the government has driven our economy into the ground. Um, but people should be around the negotiating table, negotiating um, the um, relevant agreement, etc. So I don't want strikes to go ahead. I want these things resolved. I'm furious with the government for not lifting a finger to resolve any of this. I couldn't believe it when two weeks ago... Um, they apparently put round a note saying it's been a good week for the government because they got a wedge issue on strikes uh, with the Labour Party. So instead of saying we, the government, should lift a finger, make sure that we resolve this, um, they were actually enjoying and feeding the division that led to the strikes. They wanted those strikes to go ahead. I don't because I know how much they inconvenience people. I would contrast uh, Mark Drakeford, the First Minister in Wales, because he took a different approach. He did get people round the table. He did encourage people to negotiate. And they've reached agreement there are rail strikes in Wales. That's what I would expect from a responsible leader. So far as the picket lines are concerned, um, it's not that we don't support, um, you know, what people are doing or we don't support the right to strike. Of course we do. But my job is to get the Labour Party into the mindset to be in government. Um, and in government, you want um, to help resolve issues and to get the negotiations to come to an outcome. You don't have government ministers on picket lines. And that, one of the things our party needs to do is just get in the mindset, we are trying to persuade the electorate that um, we are the next government. 
and therefore we need to act like the next government. That is the long and the short of um, why I said um, front benches should be on the picket line. It's, it doesn't mean we don't um, support, um, you know, what uh, the right to strike. It doesn't mean that our position on that has changed in any way. Um, but, so, you know, it, it's... If I, if I, as Prime Minister, it's not my job or the job of Cabinet members to be on the picket line. It's my job to do, as Mark Drakeford did, which is to try to resolve conflict, bring people together, get the problem fixed and allow the country to move on. And those that ignored you and did join the, the picket lines, have you, have you spoken to them? Well, of course, there's been discussion going on with them. There's very few in number. But, you know, I think the general approach um, is perfectly understandable. Um, your um, Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy, went further and said he doesn't support the strikes and he said he believes they hurt working people who need to get to use the railway. Do you, did you agree with that comment? Uh, there's no doubt they hurt working people. They, they hurt people who are trying to get to work. Uh, they hurt people who are trying to get to hospital for an appointment. They hurt um, students and young people who've got exams. Um, of course they do. I don't think anybody would deny that and that's why I want them resolved. Um, I do think um, with British Airways, um, we should remember that um, the staff there was subject to awful um, fire and rehire tactics um, not so long ago, which we, the Labour Party, called out. The Conservative Party keeps saying we're against fire and rehire, it's abhorrent, etc., etc. We keep saying, lay some legislation and we can pass it and stop it, and they keep refusing to do it. So... Um, in that particular case, um, the real concern, which is that fire and rehire, wouldn't have happened under a Labour government because we would ban fire and rehire. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
Can I move on to Brexit? Yeah. Uh, uh, Stella Creasy, Labour MP, has voiced frustration about the party's self-imposed silence on the issue. She said, you know, uh, we can't solve the cost of living crisis without revisiting what leaving the single market and customs union has done to grocery shopping. Um, and she said, to, to fix the problem, you first have to be able to name it. Do you feel like you agree with Stella Creasy that the party now needs to start talking about some of the damage that Brexit has done? Well, look, I don't agree with her that the answer is to go back to the single market or the customs union. Um, that ship has sailed and um, we need to make Brexit work. Um, so and yes, what we would you do differently on it. Brexit then? Oh, look, we, I think we've got to call out the government's Brexit deal as, as a very, very poor deal, leading to some of the problems that we've got. It is not normal to have lorries queued up at Dover. That wasn't the situation before. It's not normal to have the sort of conflict we've got in Northern Ireland. And we need to call it out and resolve those difficulties. How it would you, how would you resolve them? Well, if you take the protocol in Northern Ireland, um, I think um, the answer is... Uh, a veterinary agreement which keeps us, um, probably removes about 80% of the um, problems in Northern Ireland. There's a dispute in Northern Ireland about data as well and data sharing. The parties have agreed um, that data needs to be shared. The parties have agreed what data needs to be shared. The remaining issue is who provides the data. Um, now, I think that uh, in, if people are around the table in good faith, that is perfectly capable of being resolved. It will never be resolved if the government rips up the protocol. Um, I was in Dublin and Belfast three weeks ago now and spoke to leading businesses both in um, Dublin and in Belfast, and they're tearing their hair out. They're saying, um, look, we didn't really want the protocol, but we got it. And because we're business people, we work with the challenges we've got and we're making it work. And they said, there's a, Brexit, a business Brexit working group in Belfast. They've got 14 practical things that could be done to make the protocol work. And they just say to the government, grow up and get on with it. And that's what a Labour government would do. Grow up, get on with it, resolve the issue. Not play around with the idea of ripping up the protocol that you... Um, negotiate. Nobody, by the way, in either Dublin or Northern Ireland believes the Prime Minister where he says, I didn't really know what I was negotiating, it's being interpreted differently. They think he knew what he was doing, he missold it, and he's not telling the truth now. And I have never known a Prime Minister as distrusted as this Prime Minister in Dublin and or in Belfast. This is not good, because on a cross-party basis, the role of the British Prime Minister has always been the honest broker in difficult discussions. That role has been vandalised by this Prime Minister, just as he vandalises pretty well everything he gets his hands on. It must be very frustrating to go up against Boris Johnson at uh, Prime Minister's question. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very difficult to pin down. What frustrates me most about him is um, we are facing real challenges as a country and real opportunities. And as Prime Minister, you have the chance to rise to the challenges and absolutely seize the opportunities of the future. And he's not doing that because he's more interested in short-term wedge issues uh, that might create a divide with the Labour Party than he is resolving the questions facing the country. That's a dereliction of duty. You know, put all the lying and the distrust to one side. For the Prime Minister of the country not to address the long-term... Look at the energy crisis. We've had 10 or 12 years where nothing has been done on insulating homes. Nothing's been done significant on renewables. 
nuclear is stalled and now we're in the position where prices are going up and the government doesn't know what to do about it. This short-term divisive wedge issues rather than a long-term strategic approach for the country. That's my biggest frustration. The fact he doesn't answer any questions, Prime Minister, is secondary to that. Nobody even expects him to um, anymore. He's just got a list of about 10 or 12 sentences and he goes through any random order, depending on what the question is. But the, the bigger dereliction of duty is, is you know, to be Prime Minister of this country is to serve your country. It is an incredible privilege and honour. Um, and what comes with it is the responsibility of fixing the problems that are there in a proper, long-term way and seizing the opportunities. And there are brilliant opportunities ahead of us, if only we seize them. Um, you're not going like, to like my next question. You'll have seen the reports um, of, of leaks from shadow cabinet meetings. Um, you asked your colleagues not to, to stop calling you boring. Do you think you're boring? Oh, you're not going to go down that. <laughs> I, Rachel, I, I thought you weren't daft enough to go down that route. <laughs> um, look, um, I'm absolutely focused on the change we need to bring about for this country. And just give you this example. At this time yesterday, I was sitting around a big table with um, CEOs from some of the biggest um, bodies and corporations around this country. And we were having a very serious discussion about what they expect from government. Um, none of them said, a few more jokes, please. Um, a bit of a laugh, some entertainment would be good. They all said, we want a government which has a very clear sense of its mission, sets that mission clearly enough for us to have the certainty to do what we need to do, and with that partnership, a government that doesn't want to run everything but sets the mission, empowering business and communities to work together to unleash our potential, we could absolutely motor. We had a really good discussion, um, and boring wasn't on the agenda. They were actually quite excited about the fact there might be an incoming Labour government that got it, we could get on, um, and then we would get past this decade of stagnation. I mean, the, everybody must get this sense that the country is just stuck now. Backlog Britain, nothing works. You can't get a passport. You can't get um, travel sorted out. You can't see a GP. We're absolutely stuck. The, the root cause of this is the abject failure on the economy. And that's why uh, the idea that Tories are strong on the economy is just absolute nonsense. You've been leader of the Labour Party now for, for more than two years. So, two and a bit. Yeah. How, how has it changed you? Look, it's, you know, any role like this, I think, changes anyone who comes into it. I've done a number of leadership roles. Obviously, I worked as a, as a leading barrister, then I worked in Northern Ireland. I then ran the Crown Prosecution Service for five years with 5,000 staff. This is a much bigger challenge, much more, um, you know, at stake because uh, I came into politics... Um, knowing that only through politics can you bring about the change you need to bring about. So um, it's been a big challenge. It's been... The, to, to be leader of the Labour Party is, is the privilege of my life. Um, I don't want to be leader of the opposition. Um, I, I, you know, that is frustrating beyond belief. But, you know, does it change me? Yeah, I don't see my children enough and all the rest of it. So and that is frustrating. And, uh, that, you know, actually, my wife and I talk about that more than... Anything else, you know, how do we make time for the children? Because I do not want to be one of these politicians that um, simply says, I'm too busy for my own children. And then in 10 years or 20 years, I say, I really regret the fact that I didn't see my son or my daughter growing up. So I do try to have isolated periods 
when I say I'm going to be with the kids. And, and when I walk in the front door, I'm dad. And that is the most important thing. And they're pretty well in charge. It's been the situation since they were born, really. How, how does your family feel about potentially going into number 10 Downing Street? We haven't talked about it. Um, although I have to say, getting my wife Vic out of Kentish Town would be a job and a half. She's got um, very deep roots uh, in Kentish Town. She was born in Tufnell Park. Um, and so far, her concession has been to move one stop down the northern line. So, um, but we haven't talked about it. I haven't talked about it. Um, and I also just wanted to ask finally, so the younger Keir Starmer is what you might have called a bit of a lefty. Um, he wrote for the magazine Socialist Alternatives. Yes. He was a Republican. Um, he, was, he was a radical young lawyer who stood on picket lines. What do you think the young Keir Starmer would say about the current Keir Starmer leading the Labour Party? That if you don't change your views as you experience life, then you're probably not going to get very far. And, and I've, I've always been amused by this. Um, people sort of drag out something that you said here 40 years ago and say, well, uh, you changed your mind on that. Of course I have. I've changed my mind on loads of things. That's because I've done loads of things. I have... Um, represented people in court. I've had to sit in a cell with someone who's been condemned to death, knowing that if the decision we make about his case isn't the right decision, we don't win it, that person's going to die. I've run a public service, um, and therefore, you know, with 5,000 staff, and I've worked in Northern Ireland on some of the proposals under the Good Friday Agreement. That has changed me as I've grown up, and a good thing too. If I had not the idea that, as a teenager, I had perfectly formed views on everything under the sun and I never needed to think about them again would fill me with complete and utter horror. So <laughs> it really would. I mean, I think, well, hands up anyone in the room who hasn't said something when they were 14, 15, 16, 17 and, and, and never changed their mind on it. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, I've, this whole sort of line of, you know, when you were at school, on the school bus, you once said something, you know, why have you changed your mind? It doesn't grow up. Okay. Um, I'll just try and fit in a, a couple of questions from people who... Oh, yeah, sure, um, sure, sure. Um, You've got a secret list coming in. I have here. a secret <laughs> list coming in, yeah. Um, how, how do you seek to engage young people with Labour coming up to another election? Oh, I think what we have to do with young people is stop us um, older people telling younger people what they think and get younger people involved for themselves. I'm a massive fan of youth MPs. I'm a massive fan of young people being involved in our Labour Party. I'm a big fan of, of lowering the age of... Um, uh, voting to 16 so that people can actually participate. So, but we, we also have to listen to what young people have to say um, to us rather than assuming we know what um, they want in life. Um, so let young people speak and let us listen to what they have to say. OK, um, the, the top question we have is, uh, with, a, with a majority unlikely for, for Labour, considering the polls currently, will you consider a, a coalition with Lib Dems or the SNP? And would you consider PR to be an acceptable cost for office? I don't accept the premise of the question. And, I, and I'm not just saying that in an irritating way that politicians sometimes do. Two years ago, people said to me, Keir, it is not possible to get the Labour Party from where it's landed in 2019 into a position to win the next general election. It's, it's not a one-term project. And I said, I don't believe you. I don't accept that. I think we can do it, and we're going to put our shoulder to the wheel, and we're going to do it. We've got as far now as showing with the local elections and with Wakefield that we are capable of forming the next government. That, you know, before anybody says anything um, critical of the Labour Party, that is an astonishing step. Um, for the Labour Party to have got 
to a position where people are asking me questions about how are you actually going to form the next government then? Not long ago, people say you're never going to do it. So my answer to that is we've got probably two years, the next election, uh, you know, probably 2024. That is the time in which I intend to take the Labour Party to a position where we can get a majority Labour government. Um, and I'll just fit in one more, because we're, we're running short on time. Sorry, I'll now. keep my answer a bit shorter. <laughs> um, rail workers and barristers are on strike. Nurses, doctors and others are coming. Um, what is Labour's solution to those who want to be paid more for their work? Grow the economy. Grow the economy. What, what, what pay rise would you offer? Look, I mean, the, the negotiations go on every year and um, there are various negotiating bodies that will determine um, what the appropriate outcome is and come to a negotiated settlement. That happens every year. Um, and every year we're asked, well, what percentage would you give? The answer is I'm not in the negotiating room and I'm not in a position to, nor should I say, um, how that should be resolved in percentage terms. Let the negotiations go on. Let's come to uh, an outcome that people are content with and move forward from there. And let a responsible government do everything it can to facilitate that process. But never forget that the intensity of this debate is because the Tories have failed so badly on the economy. That's why we've got the highest taxes for 40 years um, and the low... We haven't had wage increase um, substantially for over a decade now. That combination is the failure of this government um, and it is among the reasons, top of my list, why we need to see the back of them. Uh, there's a really interesting question that I just want to, just, just want to fit you've in. Got, you've got um, to grin we'll, on your face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, will we'll Labour liberalise planning laws, um, you know, as the government promised and failed to deliver to help tackle... I think we've got to look again at planning laws across the piece. You would liberalise um, them? I think we've got to look at them again um, in terms of uh, across the country for a whole bunch of reasons uh, to do with what we do with wind turbines, to do with grow, you know, houses that we need, desperately need houses for people uh, to live in. The, the, the fact that so many young people can't afford a house of their own still for many, many years is something none of us should be comfortable about. You know, if you haven't got the security of an affordable roof over your head, then you haven't even got the beginnings of security in your life. OK, thank you very much, Keith. Thank Donald, you very much. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. This episode was produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed it, please remember to like, subscribe and leave us a nice review.